But anyway, welcome everyone to the Cato Institute's briefing entitled Toward a Libertarian Foreign Policy. Uh, I am Peter Russo, Director of Congressional Affairs at Cato, and I'm very pleased to host today's program. So to watch Fox News or to read the Drudge Report or listen to talk radio, you can only conclude that we are under attack. Right now, our way of life is threatened. The world is more dangerous than ever, and an early and violent death awaits us all unless we do something. Cutting defense spending, examining the effectiveness of our domestic spying programs, why you are just enabling a win for the terrorists, we are told. Indeed, a renewed campaign of threat inflation is well underway, and this type of rhetoric will certainly color the language of the burgeoning presidential campaign. The next year and a half will be a time for peddlers of fear to prop up the belief that America is in perilous danger, and only a hard-nosed, hawkish leader willing to readily employ our military might is the answer. None of this is new. The claims by many on the right in Congress and in the press are certainly overblown, and its articulators know how effective fear is as a motivator towards changing public opinion. But despite these efforts, the American public is skeptical, tired, and wary of intervention. Like so many endeavors the federal government undertakes, they always seem to come up short. The problems they set out to solve remain insoluble, and worse, often have new knots and tangles that didn't exist before. Furthermore, the costs have not been slight, and pressure on the Treasury and the printing presses are growing despite the recent short-term reductions to the deficit. So has the time finally come for a libertarian foreign policy? What would that even look like? Libertarianism describes the relationship of a citizen to his government. How does that affect the government's relationship to citizens of other countries? What would it mean for American security and America's role on the international stage? To answer these questions, I've assembled this panel here before you. To my left, Chris Preble is the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He is the author of three books, including The Power Problem, How American Military Dominance Makes Us Less Safe, Less Prosperous, and Less Free. Preble has also published articles in major publications and is a frequent guest on television and radio. In addition to his work at Cato, Preble teaches the U.S. Foreign Policy Elective at the University of California, Washington Center. Before joining Cato in February of 2003, he taught history at St. Cloud State University and Temple University. He was a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy and served on board the USS Ticonderoga from 1990 to 1993, and he holds a Ph.D. in history from Temple University. And just in the nick of time, of course, <laughs> Jim Antle has this week joined the Washington Examiner as politics editor, so congratulations. Thank you. Where he'll be overseeing political coverage of the 2016 presidential campaign. With more than a decade of experience covering politics and public policy, Antle comes from the Daily Caller, where he serves as, served as a managing editor. He was previously an editor at the American Spectator and senior writer for the American Conservative. This widely published journalist is also the author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Wrapping up will be Justin Logan. He is the director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. He is an expert on US grand strategy, international relations theory, and American foreign policy. His current research focuses on the shifting balance of power in Asia, especially with regard to China, and the formation of US grand strategy. He has authored numerous policy studies and articles on these topics, as well as on policy approaches to a nuclear Iran. He has made regular appearances on a variety of broadcast media, and he holds a master's degree in international relations from the University of Chicago. Each will speak in turn for 10 to 12 minutes, after which we'll open it up to Q&A. So please welcome Chris Preble. Great. Thank you, Peter. <clears throat> Thank you, Peter. Thanks to everyone for coming out today. Um, we'll get right to it. Um, if uh, you're here, you want to know what a libertarian foreign policy is, I'm going to try to tell you in a few short minutes. Um, 
I'd have a hard time improving on James Madison, um, who said, of all enemies of public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it contains the seeds of all others. No nation could preserve its liberty in the midst of continual warfare. Uh, you probably heard that phrase before in some context, but uh, uh, Milton Friedman had it even more succinct, war is a friend of the state. In time of war, government will take powers and do things that it would not ordinarily do. Um, I think this point bears repeating. War is a friend of the state. Government always grows during wartime, and it rarely surrenders these powers when the guns fall silent. And my my, the many examples that I cite uh, over time, perhaps um, one of my favorites is the... Uh, the excise tax on long-distance telephone calls that was instituted to pay for the Spanish-American War. The war, of course, lasted six months. The tax lasted over 100 years. Uh, but I digress. <clears throat> uh, the evidence generally is irrefutable. War is the largest and most far-reaching of all statist enterprises. It undermines private enterprise, destroys wealth, and subjects all aspects of the economy to regimentation and central planning. I think equally important it subtly alters the citizen's view of the state. We Americans in particular have a certain skepticism of the state, and yet war, and this is, I'm quoting, war substitutes a herd mentality and blind obedience for the normal propensity to question authority and to demand good and proper reasons for government actions. So writes Ronald Hamowy in the Encyclopedia of Libertarianism. He continues, War promotes collectivism at the expense of individualism, force at the expense of reason, and coarseness at the expense of sensibility. Libertarians regard all of those tendencies with sorrow. So, to summarize very briefly, war is a friend of the state, and libertarians are not friends of the state. So libertarians are not friends of war. Uh, but we're not so rare in that sense. In fact, think about how this sentiment uh, expressed itself in the structure of our government. Uh, although the, libertarian, the, the founders weren't libertarians per se, I do think you see in the founding documents uh, a real skepticism of war and the state. Uh, Madison's points on this are quite well known. A standing military force with an overgrown executive will not long be safe companions to liberty. The means of defense against foreign danger have always been the instruments of tyranny at home. So that, again, was his view. And related, George Washington in the, in the farewell address warned his countrymen to avoid the necessity of these overgrown military establishments, which are always hostile to liberty, but especially Republican liberty. You know, no pacifist he, George Washington. And the point is that standing armies, especially at that particular time, were a threat to liberty and small r Republicans, but they were also wholly unnecessary as far as George Washington was concerned. And this is from his farewell address, separated as we are by a world of water from other nations. If we are wise, we shall surely avoid being drawn into the labyrinth of their politics and involved in their destructive wars. So the founders placed quite strict limits on the likelihood and the propensity of the new government to wage war, and they imposed the greatest restrictions of all on that one branch of government which they perceived would be most prone to war, namely the executive. Uh, Madison, a few years after the Constitutional Convention, explained the rationale 
uh, in a letter to Thomas Jefferson, the Constitution supposes what the history of all governments demonstrates, that the executive branch is the branch of power most interested in war and most prone to it. And the Constitution, Madison went on, has accordingly, with studied care, vested the question of war in the legislature, unquote. This was a major point of debate in the ratification process, right? The anti-federalists believed that the Constitution went too far in granting too much power to the new government, including too much power to wage war, to which James Wilson at the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention said, this system will not hurry us to war. It is calculated to guard against it. Crucially, it will not be in the power of a single man or a single body of men to involve us in such distress, namely war. Madison, a few years later, confided that he thought that the war power, the vesting the war power in the legislative branch was the most important clause in the entire document. But in spite of all that, in spite of their interpretation of history, both ancient and recent, uh, they knew that these constitutional limitations, no standing army, a presidency unable to wear, wage war without Congress's consent, might not succeed. In particular, they knew how fear had been used in the past and likely would be used again to suppress liberty and grow the state. In 1787, at the Constitutional Convention, Madison noted, among the Romans it was a standing maxim to excite a war whenever a revolt was apprehended throughout all Europe the armies kept up under the pretext of defending have enslaved the people. And then, about a decade later, he gloomily wondered if it was a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home could always be, be charged to provisions against danger, real or pretended, from abroad. So again, I think the founders' views on these ideas are pretty clear. Um, we don't just go back to the uh, late 18th century, though, for our wisdom. Occasionally, we'll go to the early 20th century. The social critic and satirist H.L. Mencken uh, was more blunt, as usual. The whole aim of practical politics, he wrote, is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. Madison would be proud. <laughs> now. Those are some sort of obvious reasons why libertarians have traditionally been very skeptical of war, but there are still other reasons, and I think it's grounded in our skepticism of government in, in general. Um, uh, you know, we, we understand the idea of the precautionary, you know, the precautionary principle and preventive action doesn't really stand up very well. We understand the notion of unintended consequences, that good, that good intentions does not deliver good results. You know, we've read Hayek. We've actually read Hayek. We don't just kind of invoke his name, right? We understand this. Um, and so for all of these reasons, the growth of the state, uh, war is the health of the state, the problem of unintended consequences and imperfect knowledge that Hayek talked about, libertarians treat war for what it is, a necessary evil. Um, and here's how David Bowes expresses it in his most recent book, war cannot be avoided at all costs, but it should be avoided whenever possible. Proposals to involve the United States or any government in foreign conflict should be treated with great skepticism. Now, now, one could argue that these sentiments, these concerns, were more relevant in an earlier time. Uh, and, but they must be discarded, at least temporarily today. We're, it's much more dangerous today, people will say. They say, yes, we understand that war is harmful to liberty, but waging war now to prevent a worse one later 
uh, is justified in certain circumstances. And they also are skeptical that, uh, that the threats that we say are often overblown are, in fact, very real and grave. And they say the fear of the growth of the state itself is overblown and misplaced. But I think libertarians generally say that the burden of proof is on those making the case for an interventionist foreign policy, a foreign policy ultimately founded on war and warfare, uh, where the US military serves as the world's policeman, protecting others who should defend themselves. Another angle on this is it's just sort of welfare by another name, after all, right? We have dependents around the world who have grown dependent upon US military power, another concept that we understand quite well in domestic concept, context. And so when the interventionists claim that the particular threat to freedom from abroad is greater than anything we could possibly do to ourselves, I think they have a hard case to make. I mean, after all, even the non-war, war against terrorism, that is to say a war that doesn't involve mass conscription and confiscatory taxation, as World War II did, for example, even that non-war war treated us to things like Bush's torture memos and Obama's secret kill list. Okay? So those are threats to domestic liberty and to the rule of law. Just imagine what a real war would do. So to recap, libertarians are anxious of war because war is the health of the state. We're skeptical of fear-mongering because we know that it too has been used to deploy and to grow the state. And we understand that prevention often fails because the fatal conceit and the law of unintended consequences. In fact, even the most well-intended military inter interventions can, in fact, make a, t a bad but tolerable situation much worse. So that all explains what libertarians are against. What are we for? That's a valid question. What are we for? What words best describe what a libertarian foreign policy is rather than what it is not? And once again, I have a hard time improving over someone else's phrase. Confident and cosmopolitan. That's straight from David Bose's book. He writes, libertarians who propose to bring US troops home and concentrate on the defense of the United States, he writes, are sometimes accused of being isolationist. That's a misconception. Libertarians are, in fact, confident and cosmopolitan. He goes on. We look forward to a world bound together by free trade, global communications, and cultural exchange. We support maintaining the world's largest and most powerful military, but we believe that military intervention around the world costs Americans substantial blood and treasure and benefits them little. Libertarians also believe, David goes on, that although the world is growing closer together in many ways, it is inappropriate to view the whole world as a village in which everyone must pitch in to stop every fight. In a dangerous world with terrorism and nuclear weapons, it is better to keep military conflicts limited and regional rather than to escalate them through superpower involvement. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And to draw us back to the beginning again, it turns out that the founders' ideal foreign policy looks a lot like an ideal libertarian foreign policy. The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. And Jefferson famously said in his first inaugural that a foreign policy that he would pursue was peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations entangling alliances with none. That's a libertarian foreign policy. Which is why 
our Cato foreign policy page. I took a shot of it yesterday. This is what it looks like. And that's why if you focus on the bottom line, here's what it says. I'll read it to you. Cato's foreign and defense policies are guided by the view that the United States is relatively secure and so should engage the world, trade freely, and work with other countries on common concerns, but avoid trying to dominate it militarily. We should be an example of democracy and human rights, not their armed vindicator abroad. Although that view is largely absent in Washington, D.C. today, it has a rich history from George Washington to Cold War realists like George Kennan. Cato scholars aim to restore it. A principled and restrained foreign policy would keep the nation out of most foreign conflicts and be cheaper, more ethical, and less destructive of liberty. So that's a libertarian foreign policy in 10 minutes or less. And with that, I will turn it over to Jim Antle. Thank you. Everybody, it's good to be here with libertarians after having experienced public transportation in a, a TSA-like search. So that's, that's, that's always good. Uh, being a politics guy, I, I think I'll focus a little bit on, on the politics of what makes it difficult for there to be a more libertarian or a libertarian foreign policy. There are a lot of political and structural impediments uh, to the government doing less of anything. And when you, uh, you, you have, if you have, there's, there's a strong bias uh, in the America, among the American people that when you face some economic or social problem in favor of the government doing something. And when you say, well, the government shouldn't do anything in response to this problem, or the government should do some limited thing in response to this problem, People kind of say, I don't know, that sounds radical. Gee, that's bad. I don't, I don't like that. People need health care and housing and education, and there should be less poverty. And, and, all. and you're saying that the government shouldn't fix these things is, is kind of how they react. Um, when it comes to foreign crises, when it comes to foreign crises, you have bad actors on the international stage. You have dictators. You have ayatollahs. You have... You have Fidel Castro, you have Vladimir Putin. If, you're, if you say, well, yes, these people are bad and they're maybe doing bad things, but we don't necessarily need to intervene in this particular crisis, or we don't necessarily need to project our strength by getting tough with these guys in quite the way uh, that some interventionists are proposing, you get the same kind of responses when you, when you uh, are, are talking about why maybe the government shouldn't do this or that with regard to health care or poverty. It's like, gee, I, that's kind of radical and, and crazy. And, and like, if they don't do anything, you know, Putin is going to be in my house tomorrow and he's you know, going to annex it and everything will be terrible. And, but the interesting thing about it is you don't get the, these reactions or you generally don't get these reactions. There are some exceptions, but you generally don't get these reactions from the same people. The people who understand or are most likely to understand that maybe government is not the answer or the solution to every domestic problem are the, generally the most likely to be skeptical of that answer when it's presented in foreign policy. And that really makes people advocating a libertarian foreign policy sort of men and, and women without a country. You know, there's no, in our binary political system, no party, no constituency that's really speaking for that viewpoint, at least not with confidence and, and comfort. Uh, I think you can see the evidence of that 
in the vote for the Iraq War. The congressional vote for the Iraq War, we all remember that virtually all Republicans, there were only seven who voted against authorizing the Iraq War. Uh, but it's less well remembered that many Democrats voted for it. Half the Democrats in the Senate voted to authorize the Iraq War. When, you, when we talk about people who voted the Iraq War, the, the, the list will include Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Richard Gephardt, Denny Hoyer, John Kerry, uh, Chuck Schumer, Harry Reid. These are not backbencher Democrats. These are, these are actually some of the leading and most prominent members of the party and, and, and people who are going to be presented in some cases uh, as the, the, the Peace Party's uh, next candidate for president of the United States. So that means that you really don't have, you know, as, as Phyllis Schlafly and uh, Barry Goldwater might say, a, a choice uh, rather than an echo. You kind of have this sort of, you know, me tooism uh, even on the part of the, of the Democrats. And in some respects that makes sense because, you know, the Democrats are the party that likes to think that the government can keep everybody safe all the time and in every situation. But some of it is also a relic of 1980s and 1990s politics, where a lot of these people came of age uh, when the Democratic Party was perceived as weak on foreign policy, that it was perceived as uh, not adequately standing up to the Soviets in the Cold War, um, and you know, not you know, sort of. Sometimes they'd call them isolationists, but really was more often they were viewed as sort of peacenik, hippie, you know, liberal kumbaya types. And a lot of Democrats internalized that critique and regarded it as a political liability that they were perceived in this way and do all these things, in some cases which they don't even necessarily believe in, do all of these things to adapt to this political liability and to sort of say, no, I'm tough too, I, we'll be safe with, a, with President Hillary as, as safe as you will be with President Marco Rubio. The, the, the odd thing about that is it doesn't really reflect some of the trends in public opinion, it's certainly not the trends in public opinion among a lot of rank-and-file Democrats. But a lot of times what happens is when people sort of come of age politically, they, they kind of stick with the, the ideas that, that were, you know, they adopted during their formative political years. So you have a generation of Democrats that is leading, you know, leading a party of people who are actually very hesitant to see such an outsized U.S. role in the world, and particularly uh, the, the role that we're currently playing in the Middle East, uh, they're being led by people who essentially want a more tepid version of what the most hawkish elements of the Republican Party advocate, uh, or in some cases, not even a more tepid version. And, I, and you're seeing a lot of the replay of Iraq uh, occurring with regard to the debate over Iran, not that I'm suggesting that I think any, any military action is eminent, but a lot of the core assumptions that are being batted around by both parties while discussing, you know, how to deal with a potential Iran nuclear threat uh, are very similar to the core assumptions that kind of led us in, into the Iraq war. So what do we do about any of this? You know, there, there, there was a period where we were seeing real growth in the libertarian wing of the Republican Party and some chastened conservatives who were sort of moving over more towards that viewpoint. Um, but as we've seen, you know, it's very easy to make those arguments on domestic policy when everything is going well and everything is prosperous. When there seems to be any instability in the world, 
it becomes much harder to make non-interventionist arguments in foreign policy. And the Republican Party seems at the moment to be reverting to form. Um, but I don't think all is necessarily lost. Um, I think the political incentives for even the best-intentioned libertarian-leaning Republicans are bad. Um, they will be punished uh, by the, the loudest voices uh, on the right, or you know, at least relatively penalized uh, by saying anything that sort of deviates from we need to project force in the most aggressive way possible. Um, and there's been a lot of success in framing a libertarian or non-interventionist foreign policy as Barack Obama's foreign policy. Now, I find that very interesting that a president who escalated one war, launched two wars without the approval of Congress, and, and proposed another one, uh, is some kind of non-interventionist libertarian foreign policy president. But there you have it. And it's another example of how sort of the binary a political system makes it hard to have some of these kinds of debates in a nuanced fashion. Um, another disadvantage, I think, for people who are in the Republican Party who are on the right is that if you are advocating a less interventionist foreign policy, there aren't as many people who could staff your national security team, advise you on foreign policy, be seen as a credible voice for you on foreign policy, uh, who, are, who, who are willing to take and articulate these positions. A lot of people who are willing to take and articulate these positions either stay in academia, gr gravitate toward the Democratic Party, um, and so there are many more, for every you know, person like some of my co-panelists here, you know, there are five or six John Boltons or John Boltons in, in training who you could hire to advise you on foreign policy. So even uh, if your instincts might be good, the advice that you're getting is, is not going to reinforce your instincts. And um, if you're looking to project that you are credible on these issues, uh, you're, you're going to have a hard time finding, uh, you know, the academics with experience in government uh, to staff these positions because, you know, personnel to some extent is policy. And that leads into another area. One of the positives, I, I've, I think, is that I've always argued that we need to get people who are engaged in economics and domestic policy, some of the more fiscal conservatives and libertarians who specialize in non-foreign policy areas to make them be a little bit more vocal on foreign policy. I, remember I, was, I was here you know, during the whole the, the, the 2006 when, when there didn't seem to be a whole lot of open dissent within the Republican Party on foreign policy, but you quietly heard a lot of these conservative uh, budget experts would kind of say, you know, gee, I don't know that this Iraq war thing is such a great idea. Um, you know, I don't know. But they didn't really, you know, being good disciples of Adam Smith, we, we practice this specialization. So, you know, budget people talk about budget things. Social conservatives talk about social things. And, and you know, foreign policy experts and national security experts talk about foreign policy things. And uh, the foreign policy experts we had were predominantly hawkish, you know, uh, you know neoconservative or interventionist and various other flavors. And, you know, you'd hear these, these budget types saying, you know, around 2006, 2007, when things clearly were not going well in Iraq, saying, gee, you know, I don't know if these people we've hired to, to handle this foreign policy part of the right know what they're talking about. So 
there still needs, obviously, to be some foreign policy expertise that comes from a less interventionist perspective on the right. But, but I think in the meantime, before we can kind of cultivate those institutions and cultivate that talent in people, uh, I think that there is a vacuum that needs to be filled by people who are philosophically sympathetic to a less in interventionist foreign policy, but who specialize on other issues. I think that they shouldn't necessarily let the division of labor uh, dictate what the Republican Party's foreign policy is going to be. Um, I think another positive, since you know, so far this talk has trended toward the negative, I think another positive is that the younger demographic within the Republican Party, on the, on the right, uh, is much less interventionist in its foreign policy thinking. Uh, it, it, many of these people did not grow up uh, during the height of the Cold War or have little memory of the Cold War. Uh, their, their thinking was sort of developed in, in, in other paradigms. They have seen instead uh, some of the, the negatives of intervention and some of the unintended consequences of intervention. That's what's occurred during their politically formative years. And a number of them were inspired uh, to enter politics by Ron Paul, who uh, you know, to, certainly made relevant a lot of conservative and libertarian foreign policy arguments that had kind of lain dormant in the Republican Party, you know, at the very least since you know Pat Buchanan's presidential campaigns in the '90s, and and, and maybe all the way back to to when Robert Taft was it was uh, around and kicking. Uh, so that I think is a, a positive development. But the structural incentives to always say yes to government remain. I think what libertarians need to do is need to redouble the effort of explaining to conservatives why a lot of their premises about domestic policy apply to foreign policy, even if you grant, as I do, that national defense is a legitimate and a preeminent power of the federal government. I also think, as we are seeing uh, very fruitful alliances between civil libertarians across the political spectrum, it is important to engage uh, the peace progressives who are, who are large in number at this point in the Democratic Party, but, but often not reinforced by their leadership. I think you need to have ad hoc, case-by-case -case alliances with them on these issues because they provide a large number of the votes in Congress uh, that can potentially defeat bad things, and maybe eventually at some point uh, shape us in the direction of some good things or move us in the direction of some good things. Um, I think uh, an encouraging example of that was when the president uh, wanted to bomb Syria and Secretary of State John Kerry went to Congress and said, come on, guys, this is just going to be an unbelievably small war. It's just a little one. Can't we just have one little, you know, couple bombs here and there? It'll be fine. And... Congress said no, and Congress said no because you had a core group of Tea Party Republicans that did not want to just hand that power over to the president, and you had a large group of progressive Democrats who said, you know what, I thought we were, you, you were going to come in and, and be, be our peace president, so why are, why are we having uh, more war? And Congress was unwilling to go along with this mission. The challenge, I think, becomes on the right. It was easier to make that argument on the right because the less interventionist position was also an anti-Obama position. It was also a position that you could articulate from a, a, a politically opportunistic perspective. 
And you're never going to avoid the fact that most politicians, or at least a large number of politicians, are political opportunists. Um, on things like Iran, you end up having it framed more like the less interventionist position is somehow uh, the pro-Obama position. And so that makes it a little tougher for Republicans, but it doesn't necessarily make it tougher. Matter of fact, it makes it easier uh, for progressive Democrats. So I think we've seen sort of a template for how there can be a successful left-right coalition uh, in favor of a less interventionist or more libertarian foreign policy. The Where it kind of breaks down is um, when you have a Republican president advocating a, a more hawkish foreign policy. And the, the, the easiest answer would be to try to nominate a, a Republican president who is less hawkish uh, and we may have some hope to do that, but we may also some of those other earlier problems that I've described with 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 the biases of the primary electorate and the dearth of foreign policy advisors reinforcing good instincts. Uh, you you may face some problems there, but I think overall, you know, comparing to where things were in two thousand six, two thousand seven, um, there's a lot more hope even within the political system. Uh, than you would have had, than I thought would have been realistic by this point in time. So even in, with some skepticism that I have right now, I think if people stay engaged, st continue to make these arguments, and continue to not just allow you know five people uh, who you know want to plan wars to, to obviously exaggerating, but you know to, to not allow the same familiar voices be have a monopoly on foreign policy discussion, not just on the right, but also on the center left, I think we can continue to build on some of the progress that we've made in the last few years. And, uh, you know, there's only so much you can accomplish in politics, but I think politics is a sort of defensive battle to prevent bad things from happening is, is you know, you, you to, to paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, you, you go to war with the system that you have, so maybe we can go to war a little bit less. Thanks. Let me just echo my co-panelists in thanking all of you for coming, uh, thanking Peter for putting this together, um, and thanking the, my co-panelists themselves. Um, one of the things that you know you learn when you debate is you always want to make sure that you have the debate resolution perfectly nailed down, right? Is this exactly the position that I want to attack or defend? And I had a sort of surreal experience looking at the, the invite language that I signed off on um, and thinking it's impossible to do this in 10 minutes. Right? We're going to talk about libertarian foreign policy, what it means, how to get there, how to do it. Uh, and so I thought the only way to respond to this was to abstract it even higher uh, and make it even more impossible to fulfill uh, and to talk as fast as I can. So if you'll indulge me, I'll try to do that. Um, to signpost, I want to start off by sort of framing the thing is basically saying, what do people want from foreign policy? Uh, because I think when we talk about libertarian foreign policy or conservative foreign policy or liberal foreign policy, um, I think it's worth exploring what makes those things libertarian or conservative or liberal, respectively, uh, and pushing on the extent to which uh, the foreign policy judgments flow from the political philosophies or whether they flow from something else. And then in conclusion, I suspect I won't have time to go into this in any detail, but I have a, uh, a nauseatingly detailed paper on SSRN talking a little bit about 
um, some of the obstacles uh, between the status quo uh, and something that could fairly be called a libertarian foreign policy that echoes some of the things Jim, made, Jim mentioned, uh, but with footnotes. So what do people want from foreign policy? Uh, in a certain sense, what we want um, is the efficient production of national security, right? To think about it in sort of business terms or economic terms, right? We want to make sure that Americans are safe, that our sovereignty is protected, uh, and that, that we have the ability to live our lives uh, without coercion from some external threat. And so when you think about it, if someone has a good way of producing these sorts of things, everyone should support it whether they're liberal or conservative or libertarian, right? The efficient production of national security is something that people um, should, support, should support and doesn't really have much to do with, with political philosophy. Um, and so talking about what libertarians think about foreign policy, I, I think there's sort of first-order considerations and second-order considerations. And I'll put some of the first-order considerations as assertions that I can defend during the Q&A, if you like, um, most libertarians think that the U.S. is the most secure great power in modern history, right? So if you start the clock in the second half of the second millennium A.D., we, we're not in Shangri-La or the Garden of Eden, but we're pretty damn close. Uh, we are very secure. The arguments that Chris mentioned that uh, uh, distance has been uh, obviated by the Internet and container ships are basically wrong. We're going to have a guy come argue that uh, who wrote a book about it. May 26th. Um, and as Chris also mentioned, libertarians tend to think that if the United States defended fewer countries on their behalf, they would defend themselves uh, to a greater extent than they do now. In, in an academic article attacking us, which is interesting, it's nice to be attacked by academics, um, it's mentioned that the United States has formal treaty commitments to countries comprising 75% of the world's GDP. It's a terrifically striking figure when you stop to think about it. Um, so to what extent has Uncle Sam become Uncle Sucker in paying for other people's defense uh, and taking money forcibly from taxpayers uh, to spend it on other countries? And I think, in case I haven't been provocative enough, I think most libertarians think that the greatest threat to U.S. national security in the re recent couple of decades has been ideas that have sprung from the head of the American foreign policy elite. Not Al-Qaeda, not Iran, not China, not Russia. Uh, but rather the wreckage that the American foreign policy elite has produced in carnage uh, and trillions of dollars squandered to no good end uh, has in fact been the greatest national security threat. So those are the sort of first order considerations. And then there's what I think are really second order considerations that are unique to libertarians, uh, or not necessarily unique, but uniquely emph emphasis, em emphatic to libertarians. War makes the government bigger. Uh, sometimes it even does things, as we find out this morning, uh, that are illegal uh, in response to uh, big wars. They cost lots of money, which is anathema to many libertarians. Uh, it's bad for civil liberties, and not trivially, it gets lots of our fellow citizens killed uh, and maimed in considerable numbers. But unless you're a pacifist or some sort of peculiar flavor of libertarian I haven't met, those second-order considerations are really second-order considerations, right? Because if we could never do anything to uh, violate civil liberties, uh, if we could never do anything to get our fellow citizens killed in large numbers, if we could never do anything that spent lots of money on overseas adventures, then we would just never have any wars or security commitments or anything, right? If the cost of protecting civil liberties was an ISIS amphibious landing in Miami, libertarians would support abrogating civil liberties. So what we're trying 
trying to figure out is when there's variation, right? When a, a libertarian would support uh, intervention. And that goes back to those first order considerations about the nature of the world in which we live, how states relate to one another, and how secure the United States is. So a belief in the value of or the outcomes produced by a, a system of government that embraces individual liberty doesn't necessarily tell you how much to worry about China, right? So by the same token, I, it's not clear to me that a conservative view of government or a liberal view of government can tell you how much to worry about China. Political philosophies need help in thinking about how to craft foreign policy. Um, so to recapitulate, what's libertarian about libertarian foreign policy is the emphasis on and concern for those second-order implications, uh, while really deferring to those first-order judgments about how dangerous the world really is uh, and how to understand those questions. And I think only in extreme circumstances, to take one uh, searing recent example being the Iraq War, could we say that a foreign policy is just expressly, blindingly anti or unlibertarian? Uh, and we can go into to chapter and verse in that in the question and answer period. So, what do libertarians or conservatives or liberals need to bring in to think about these sorts of first order considerations? Well, they need theories of international politics, they need theories of foreign policy, they need a story about how states relate to one another, what causes dangers, and how to judge those dangers. And I think generally speaking, with some exceptions, libertarians, as traditional conservatives did in the United States for most of their time, uh, embrace a foreign policy school of thought called realism. Um, realism is a pessimistic view of the world, right? It doesn't see lots of room for cooperation. Uh, it's skeptical about how states use, and in many cases abuse, power uh, against one another. And one interesting thing that touches on something that Chris uh, had sort of uh, uh, mentioned in his presentation is an emphasis on balancing power, right? And so if you think about, for example, during the founding, the debate about separations of powers, it wasn't so much that the framers thought that any particular president or any particular legislature or any particular judiciary was going to be wicked and venal and usurp its power given to it, but they thought that concentrated power was dangerous and the only way to ensure uh, that people would be free from rapacious use of that power was to check that power with a counterpoise, with countervailing power. And I think you can see the, the emphasis on that, obviously, in the founding documents of the country, but this permeates the writing of realists uh, through the years. So you have things like Hans Morgenthau, a famous IR realist in the, who wrote in the 1950s and 60s, uh, quoting John Randolph, uh, who wrote, you may cover whole skins of parchment with limitations, but power alone can limit power. So this is a sort of way that I think most libertarians many traditional conservatives and all foreign policy realists think about international politics. I think realists and libertarians and traditional conservatives are particularly concerned about unintended consequences, right? To use the Weberian argot, it's an ethic of responsibility, not an ethic of intentions, right? We have a responsibility to think about the likely outcomes, whether we intend them to come to pass or not. And to provoke here maybe a little bit, 
I, I think one of the, the differences among libertarians in thinking about uh, foreign policy and U.S. foreign policy in particular um, is an emphasis on political order, right? So for the more realist-inclined libertarians, this is something that has particularly been put up in bright lights in the past 20 or so years, but I think has been uh, underpinning a lot of our thought uh, for decades. And that's that political order is precious, right? For all of the other things that libertarians value, you need to have some semblance of political order in the United States or in any other country. And political order is, in fact, quite difficult to produce, as I think we've demonstrated uh, beyond question uh, in the past couple of decades. So these are sort of, I, I think, you know, as I, as I sort of espouse this, this is this, a sort of conservative libertarian uh, orientation. There's a sort of more revolutionary uh, uh, flavor of libertarianism that might uh, differ on these questions, I suppose. And so at the risk of boring you a little bit further, I want to argue that the consensus grand strategy in the United States is expressly anti-realist, right? So most, almost all conservatives, almost all liberals uh, hold a, a liberal view of international politics, which is somewhat different than what we mean in the United States when we say liberalism. But just to sort of put some meat on these bones, Barry Posen, whom some of you may have heard of, a professor at MIT, was debating Robert Kagan, who probably most of you have heard of, who's at Brookings, about grand strategy and how the United States should conduct itself uh, in international politics. And so I cheekily posed to them the question, where do you see your points of view fitting in the American political spectrum, right? Is, is this a conservative story that you're telling? Is it a liberal story that you're telling? And Kagan didn't bat an eye and said, this is basically a liberal program, right? And so people have described Kagan as being conservative, neoconservative, et cetera. And I thought it was the candid was quite striking. Candor was quite striking. Uh, and I certainly agreed, so that made it even better. Um, but this is basically a liberal program. And if you think about the progressive era in the United States in the early 20th century, the whole idea was getting the American government and American bureaucrats in particular to improve things, right? They were going to improve the American polity. They were going to improve the lot of the poor. Uh, they were going to use technocratic solutions to make the government work better. Um, and I think you can see this very much in the consensus grant strategy that we follow today, right? It's a philosophy of improvement. We're going to change the world with the American government. I think there's another point that's the, an emphasis on the internal politics of states driving foreign policy behavior, right? So where realists would say, this is basically a story about the balance of power. States are fearful of one another, and they compete to try to secure themselves from one another. Progressives, liberals, to include basically everybody who you see on a Sunday morning talk show talking about foreign policy, in my phrasing, think that good states do good things and bad states do bad things. Moreover, that states that do bad things do them because they're bad. Uh, and that's basically the explanation for why we see the things in international politics that we see. So I advertised correctly that I wasn't going to have a lot of time uh, to get into the obstacles, but I have a 40-page exegesis of this on SSRN, if anybody isn't bored yet. Um, and the basic story is I think there are three obstacles, none of which is public opinion itself. Um, there's the 70 or 80-year-old bureaucracy that's been built up in the United States to execute foreign policy, more particularly an expansive foreign policy. There's an intellectual infrastructure that goes along with that bureaucracy that is uniformly behind an expansive grand strategy. There are economic interests in perpetuating the grand strategy, just as there are economic interests in perpetuating everything that has happened in Washington. 
And in particular, and this is particularly pernicious, elite preferences are uniformly behind the consensus grand strategy. Uh, like Bourbon Kings, the American foreign policy elite has learned nothing and forgotten nothing over the past 20 years of foibles, uh, and I see very little prospect that a different counter-realist uh, foreign policy elite has been built up. Thank you very much. I'll stop there. <clears throat> Um, I'm not going to let a TSA search cut our time short. So um, if you guys are willing, can we go till yeah. 10 after? Yeah, yeah to do Q&A. Um, well, let's start with Q&A. I want to allow as many questions as we can get in. So keep your question in the form of a question and not in a soliloquy. So, or yeah, we'll go with you. I think it's a great question, but I don't think I, I think the answer is no. I, I think that it's possible to judge the wisdom of a war based on the arguments made before it came out. And I, I think, I mean, not to have everything hinge on Iraq, but I think that it's not just that the outcome of Iraq was it went badly. It was a lot more costly than we thought it was going to be. It was that the precise arguments for going to war all turned out to be false, and we learned that after the fact as well. So I don't think that is purely a function of of the fact that it came out badly. I think, and, and, and what that would mean is that you could have a good war fought for the wrong reasons. A good war meaning a war that came out well, relatively speaking, but that still doesn't mean that the, ju the original justifications were valid, right? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that one either. Uh, but but uh, you know, on grading on a curve, right? Then that one's better than the second one. And the argument is because the second war, the second Iraq war, was a, new, a direct result of the first, right? So I think you have to kind of treat them all together. Uh, yes. Does the fact that Iran will soon acquire nuclear weapons change your thinking on anything? Because these are dangerous things. I mean, Iran can't do much damage with conventional weapons, but they can do a lot of damage with with if you want to bet whether Iran will acquire a nuclear weapon in the next decade, I'll take the bet. Um, I don't think they're about to acquire a nuclear weapon. I think the Americans tend to overstate the extent to which nuclear weapons buy power projection capability. They're extremely useful at deterring attack or regime change from outside powers, but they're not terribly useful at projecting power. I think there's some consideration that an Iran that felt secure under a nuclear uh, deterrent could do more of the nasty things that it does in the region at present, but it can't threaten the vital interests of Israel. It can't threaten the vital interests of Saudi Arabia. It certainly can't threaten the vital interests of the United States. For those reasons, I think it would be good if Iran didn't obtain a nuclear deterrent, but I think that, and this is just a reflection of the, the huge intellectual infrastructure that has been built up to make hawkish arguments these arguments are almost uniformly appreciated by people who study, among other things, nuclear proliferation, power projection, security studies, and no one on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC says these things. Uh, yes, on the end. Um, I'm Betty Chin, and I'm from Center for Democracy. I was wondering, um, Justin, you said that 
libertarians tend, um, they want a balance of power because they have a realist ideology, and I generally agree with that. And he also said that too much power generally increases the chances of corruption. Most of the studies of corruption that I've seen in the United States actually um, point to the media as the most prone to corrupt entities. Um, so how, how do you make that tie between, I, I guess, quantitatively, in terms of power and corruption? Can you say more policy? I don't remember using the word corruption, but if I did, can you, what did I mean when I said corruption, or what did you mean when you said corruption? Um, I, let, let, me, let, me, let me see if I can take it on. So essentially, the argument that I was trying to make is that unbalanced power is dangerous, right? So if you put, for example, as we functionally have done, the war power in the hands of the executive branch, the framers worried that putting that power in one person's hands would be dangerous because they could just get up and eat a bad omelet and decide to start a war, right? I mean, it was, there were supposed to be checks and balances, countervailing power to, to stop, to sort of put fire breaks in the system. So I wasn't talking about corruption in the sense of people getting paid off to do special favors for things. So if I use the word corruption, I, I misspoke. But essentially, that the argument that I was making was that concentrated power is dangerous for the reasons that it tends to be used in imprudent ways. So I don't know if that clarifies or... I was just wondering about a quantification for that, because um, it, it seems like there's no quantification for the power that you're talking about, which makes it really difficult to quantify. It's an argument. For we, don't have, we don't have many cases in human history of a single country having control, you know, the, over, the level of overwhelming military power that the United States has at relative to anyone else. Sure, right. Small end problem, so, right? Right. To the, I'm, I'm still not confident that I'm understanding what's being asked, but it won't stop me from trying to answer. Um, so the argument would be that if the, Uni if the Soviet Union had been in Mexico rather than thousands of miles away, we might not have done Vietnam, right? That Vietnam was an outgrowth of the fact that we were, despite the f rhetoric that surrounded the 1960s and the 1970s in this country, terrifically secure, um, the United States had already vastly outstripped the Soviet Union in terms of output. At the, height, at the most favorable point during the Cold War, does anybody know what the Soviet Union's economic output was, was in fact, compared to the United States? It was 50% of the United States' economic output. But we inflated those numbers and convinced ourselves that, in fact, the Soviets were 10 feet tall. We were really endangered um, when that wasn't true. And so if we had been practically shoring up the defenses on our southern border to prevent not, you know, gardeners from coming over, but, you know, the Soviet 14th Army from coming over, we wouldn't have gone halfway around the world to start a war on the zany basis that it was about us or the international communist conspiracy or something like that. Uh, yes, you in yellow. Uh, could a right-thinking libertarian be comfortable with a an American foreign policy that is driven very largely by commercial interests only, rather than, um, say, a, a human rights agenda? Um, I would say yes, but the way that that's normally conveyed is not my view of a libertarian foreign policy, which is to say there are many bad arguments for a, a, an aggressive foreign policy or even a militaristic or hawkish foreign policy grounded in economic arguments, those are not good arguments either, 
right? So, 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 you know, I don't think there are a lot of good arguments to make for waging war on behalf of kind of humanitarian considerations that don't engage U.S. vital national interests. I do believe in trade and the importance of trade to the U.S. economy, but I don't believe that it requires a very active and aggressive military posture and presence in order to keep trade flowing, not the least of which is because the, there are many, many beneficiaries of trade around the world and very few people who are, who are actually harmed by it or therefore have an interest to stop it. Uh, and so actually, uh, I would, if you're interested in this subject, we actually published a book last year that talks about um, the threat inflation. And we, we have, there, there are three different chapters that address this question specifically about the economic, the, how fragile is the international economic system, and is that a threat worth worrying about? Uh, and all three of those authors, in addition to those chapters, have written other papers on that same topic. So if you're interested in it, I would highly recommend that. Yes, you in the glasses. Uh, my name is Nick Morbus. I'm with uh, Rare.us, and um, my question was, uh, when, when people talk about foreign policy, especially in the media, but not only that, in Congress, uh, the level to which discussions of foreign policy never seem to amount to discussing sectarian violence, uh, sectarian conflicts in the Middle East uh, between, you know, Sunni Shias, you know. Um, and which has led to certain issues in Iraq, uh, the uprising of ISIS against a Shia leader in Iraq. Uh, my question is, do you believe that this comes from a, uh, a point of ignorance in the Congress and the media, since it is very rarely discussed, or is it a intentional brushing over of this uh, conflict in order to promote a more hawkish foreign policy? I, I I mean, don't get me started on TV producers because they don't know anything about anything. Um, they, they Look, and it's not their job to know anything about anything, right? We have this goo-goo idea that there's a marketplace of ideas and the producer should bring on people and it's like firing line or there's like a black backdrop. and That's just not what they do, right? They're selling advertising. And what gets eyeballs on screens is people screaming at each other and, you know, pounding the table about the latest thing in the news cycle. So sort of deeper understanding, if you're looking to, you know, TV producers to produce that, unfortunately, it's not going to happen. In Congress, I think the problem is similarly incentives, right? There's an operational mindset, right? Like, how do we, how do we fix the problem of the day? Not why does the problem of the day exist? Do we even have a solution for the problem of the day? What are the underpinning problems? What, what, what's driving this phenomenon? It's just how do we fix it? And so I don't think it's like a pernicious Marxist thing that's going on, whether some moneyed interest pulling the strings or whatever. It's just, it's nobody's job, unfortunately. Uh, and, and again, in the schoolhouse rock kind of sense of things, it is a legislator's job, but in the practical world, it's not. Right. Uh, yes, you. Yeah, my question is for Justin a little bit. I mean, an interesting uh, uh, contrast between the primary and secondary considerations of foreign policy. But I thought I heard you say that makes it the libertarian perspective is the emphasis on the secondary perspective. I would have thought it was different. I would have thought that the libertarian view is that the, the, the interventionist foreign policy is counterproductive, inefficient, and uh, unethical. And whereas conservatives might agree that it might be inefficient, and liberals might agree it might be unethical, I thought what makes it uni uniquely libertarian insight is that it's usually counterproductive. You make a good point that we're even more unique than I laid out. Um, what I meant to sort of illustrate was the uniquely libertarian insights are those concerns about civil liberties, those concerns about costs, those concerns about the corrosive effect on governance at home that aren't really shared by conservatives or liberals. But you're quite right that the more analytic, the more IR questions 
are quite unique in and of themselves. It's just not clear to me that they're uniquely libertarian, per se, as opposed to very, very different from what people we identify as conservatives and liberals say. All right, we got time for one more, and luckily there's only one. That's an excellent question. Ask your extra second one. I, mean, I wrote a whole book about this subject, the power problem, which which asked the question: If we have this military power and it's it is retained not entirely for the original purpose that it was built in the first place, then you'll find excuses to use it. So that's an argument for shaping your actual power to a purpose, not the other way around. Welcome in. It's kind of come on. <laughs> Well, that's an argument for go- that's an argument for government generally, right? So we believe in the rights of individuals to uh, to to you know to pursue their own ends without transgressing the rights of others, and property rights being one of them. But that's an argument for uh, domestic law enforcement as much as and courts as it is a, 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 an argument for foreign policy to defend property rights. Do you want to add? Well, no. It's an enormous assumption, though, on empirical <laughs> ground. I mean, that's the, the argument is you don't need that much to keep ISIS out of Miami Beach. I, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> I use that Good. hypothetical for a reason. Progress. Right. Uh, <laughs> actually, I had actually hoped to come here today to learn, uh, if there is one, the liberal alternative perspective on aid and development. Okay. You guys were talking about war rather than... Right. Sure. Um, we find, uh, my colleagues and I who have studied this more, even more than I have, find that uh, most state-sponsored aid fails for the same reason that most state-sponsored domestic programs fail. is because the incentive structure is wrong, because the, 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 uh, uh, the, the, the way that the, in, the aid is dispensed is political and not efficient in a market sort of way, uh, that uh, to, to paraphrase... Uh, uh, famous economist Lord Peter Bauer that uh, foreign aid is the practice of uh, uh, poor people in rich countries giving money to rich people in poor countries. That's sort of how it works. That's how it has worked. And and it's hard to believe that it can work any other way because the reason why aid is dispensed on a state-to-state sta- state state basis is because you don't have the underlying institutions, rule of law, property rights, and things like that that actually make it stick, right? So you're going through the bad institutions. You're funneling aid money through bad institutions, and it doesn't make the institutions good. If anything, it actually incentivizes them to keep doing what they've been doing, which is to be rapacious and and not responsive to their people's needs and things like that. We actually, I'm not an economist, and I haven't written about this a lot myself, but we find that 
in terms of promoting good governance and, uh, uh, and, and liberty through example is more effective than trying to promote it either by force of arms or by, by holding out large chunks of money and handing it out to, to political elites in poor countries and thinking that it's going to convince them to be good, governance, uh, good, good governments all you know, because we, we're, we're incentivizing them that way. Good. Well, if you found libertarian solutions intriguing, uh, we published a white paper in February called uh, Policy Priorities for the 14th Congress. This is all available at uh, Cato.org. So thank you all for staying late. I really appreciate it. And let's give one more welcome to our, thank you to our speaker. Thank you.